And I'm going to recommend uh, that you go onto Amazon, uh, not right now, your phones, and you, you buy this uh, book. I saw somebody um, do a book plug like this before a, a service, and they said of this book that it passed the thinness test. Okay, so this book's a bit like that. It is called Echoes of Exodus. Uh, it's by two men called Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson. And uh, the last time I looked on Amazon, there were seven copies. Okay, so if you want to jump on there at the end and buy it, I find it really helpful. And I just wanted to recommend it as uh, we uh, get into this series in Exodus in the second week. And uh, the title, Echoes of Exodus, uh, they've chosen that title uh, really deliberately because uh, the Exodus is it's one event in Scripture, isn't it? And yet the Exodus themes run through the whole of Scripture. We're going to see that as we uh, look at all these passages in Exodus together, I think. Um, and uh, it's a wonderful book, so I'd just encourage you to perhaps pick it up at some point. But this passage this evening that we're looking at in chapter 2 of Exodus, um, it's really a tale of two halves. Um, it's the story of Moses as a boy in verses 1 to 10, and then Moses as a man in verses uh, 11 to 22, and really it spans uh, about 80 years in total. And it's the story about uh, how God raises up a redeemer for his people. How does God raise up a redeemer uh, for Israel when they're in Egypt? We're going to think about it under those, those two headings. First, Moses the boy, verses 1 to 10. Moses the boy. And then later, Moses the man. Moses the boy. Verses 1 to 10, it's, it's a really dangerous passage, isn't it? It's a a kind of sentimental story. It's a bit of a Sunday school favorite. Michael has uh, a little Bible at home or a book of kids' stories that he was given at the end of uh, the Sunday school term, the Little Stars term. And uh, that, this story in verses 1 to 10 is in that book. And yet, this story is a story for all of us. It's a story for us, whatever age we are. And part of the reason for that is that the backdrop to these verses, 1 to 10, they're just so bleak and they're just so black, aren't they? And if you are here last week, you'll remember that. The previous chapter and it ends with an edict from the king that every Hebrew boy was to be thrown into the Nile. And this was one man mobilizing a whole nation against the Jewish people. And he wanted, of course, to prevent babies from growing up to be men. They would uh, pose a physical threat to, to Egypt. He wants the Israelite family tree destroyed, cut down. Uh, this is an attempt at genocide. And I want us just to think what that would have meant for God's people. It, it created a, a, a climate, didn't it? A climate of suspicion. Is that woman pregnant? climate of fear. Uh, the people of God would have been spied on. Uh, the people of God would now be living in a kind of surveillance society, wouldn't they? Imagine uh, the impact, imagine the stress on Hebrew women. Pregnancy is hard enough, isn't it? Uh, without nine months of dread. 
And then in verse 1, look what we read. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. A son. And in this story, the camera, it kind of zooms in all of a sudden on this one little family. It's a bit like if you, you read the book of uh, Judges, and then all of a sudden you read the book of Ruth. Uh, straight after that book, you focus from a, a whole bunch of people to, to just a couple of individuals, one little family. We focus on a, a husband and a wife and their beautiful little boy. And what's happening here is really, really significant. God could have done the kind of thing he does in uh, the book of Judges. He could have raised up a deliverer for his people. He could have anointed someone already alive, already grown up, an adult. But God doesn't do that. And just think about who God gives and when God gives him. God decides to give his people a son. And he gives that son at the very moment sons like that are under threat. I think, friends, this is it's a kind of act of defiance on God's part. And it's a sign of God's sovereignty. How God does things in Scripture is almost as important as what he does. And he is, he's actually teaching us something here. God is saying to Pharaoh, I am going to walk onto the territory that you think you own, and I am going to give my people a son, a redeemer, right under your nose. Pharaoh, you think you're in charge of Egypt? No, I'm in charge of Egypt. And I think it reminds us uh, of something, doesn't it? I find it really hard not to think about Christmas all year round. It drives the people in my family absolutely nuts. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And Moses' birth, it shows us the way God works. In a world full of, of rage, a world full of sin, God acts in a really surprising way. God gives his people a child, a child who would have to grow up uh, before he could deliver them. Now, God doesn't choose to just give them a warrior. Now, God is so confident, God is so in control that he works like this. A baby is born in Egypt, just as a baby would be born in Bethlehem. See, what does Paul say? When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us. And in a sense, it was the same with Moses. God could have clicked his fingers, couldn't he? God could have decided to save his people there and then, but God didn't do that. God chose to work in a different way, in a, what we might say, mysterious way. Now, that can be so hard, can't it, for us as God's people? And God actively chose to have it this way. And yet so often when God does things like that, we find it difficult, don't we? We want God to do things really quickly. We want easy deliverance. Sometimes as God's people, as Christian believers, we, we experience long periods of, of silence. And heaven itself seems silent. And yet God is God. And God has reasons for doing things 
that you and I do not get to know, and we need to trust him. And I think what we see in verse 3 and following is this, before Moses rescues God's people, he himself is rescued, isn't he? Before Moses rescues God's people, he is rescued. Now, there's loads of irony in this uh, passage. There's so many amazing uh, great details. Uh, He's placed in a basket in verse 3. If uh, Professor Traub was still here, he would tell us that that uh, word could be translated as ark. And so this baby wasn't left on a doorstep. This baby is saved. This baby is delivered. This is drawn up from the water, the very place of judgment and death. And we're going to see in Exodus that water is really significant, and big things happen when we come to water. But one of the challenges, of course, of a story like this is the familiarity of it. Friends, I think if we were hearing these words for the very first time, uh, verse 5 Verse 5 would probably have us on the edge of our seats, wouldn't it? Pharaoh's daughter arrives on stage. She comes to bathe, and she sees the basket, and she asks her servant girls, uh, her girl, to bring it. If this was a film, if we were in the cinema, we would, our popcorn would be in midair, wouldn't it? Uh, Look at verse 6, though. She sees the child. She hears the cry. She she has pity. She knew the policy, and yet she doesn't follow through on it, does she? And I think this teaches us something about human beings. Sometimes in God's common grace, he he prevents men and women from following through on evil. Um, All human beings are made in God's image, they have great dignity, as, as Jim reminded us this morning. And though we're fallen, though we're capable of great wickedness, we, we have a conscience, don't we? Sometimes that keeps us from doing wrong. God restrains sin in our world. Already, if you're here last week, we met two really gutsy women, uh, the midwives. I hope you can still remember their names. And we meet another in verse 7, don't we? She's been watching on, and she uh, sees her opportunity. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now, don't you think her heart was in her mouth as she, she said those words? And Pharaoh's daughter says, go. She, she does, and she brings the baby's mum. She is the one who becomes the childminder. And there is just lovely humor here, isn't there? A lovely kind of irony. But think about what that would have meant for that woman. Think about that reversal. Think of the emotion that she's gone through, even up to this point. She would now get to feed, to hold, to to love, to play with her little boy, the, the one that she thought she'd lost. It's beautiful. And so is this little boy's name. When he's grown a little older, Pharaoh's daughter gives him a name. It means drawn up from the water. Friends, what's the big point here? 
Well, I think it's this. Before, as I said, Moses rescues God's people, he is rescued. Before he delivers them, he is delivered. His experience, if you like, it reflects the very experience of Israel. This is true of us as well. Our lives, friends, are guided. A few weeks ago at the the prayer meeting, some of us, uh, we read these words from the Heidelberg Catechism. Here's the question. What do you understand by the providence (coughs) of God? Answer, God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Friends, whatever is going on this evening in our lives, God has a hand, His hand on our lives. God knows what He is doing in your life this evening. Will you trust Him? So Moses, the the boy. But there's a second thing here, isn't there? In in verses 11 to 22, we, we see Moses, the man. Moses, the man. And uh, if we're in danger of getting sentimental about verses 1 to 10, uh, I don't think that could be the case here, could it? This is really dark. It's complicated. Um, Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 23 makes clear that as verse 11 begins, Moses is now um, 40 years old. He's he's a man in his prime. Um, He's had four decades living as uh, Pharaoh's daughter's son. And he's had all the privileges that that would have meant. And yet, he is a conflicted man. Deep down, he is Hebrew. And he's not ashamed to call these Hebrews his brothers. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And we see this in verse 11. Look at the two things that he sees in that verse. He sees his people's burdens And he sees one of his very own being beaten by an Egyptian. Now, there's been lots of debate about uh, Moses' response here. Was he right? Uh, Was he wrong? I've been really tempted to pick uh, one side this week, come down really hard and say he's absolutely right, he's absolutely wrong. And yet, I think it's actually quite hard to do that. Look at how verse 12 begins. He looked this way and that. Uh, Some people think, of course, that he's he's kind of checking here to see if if he's being watched. He's he's checking to see if he can can get away with what he's about to do. Uh, The slight complication with that view, the slight difficulty with that view is that uh, that phrase 
the, the phrase, he saw there was no one to help, the phrase, the, you know, seeing no one, that, that, that phrase is used to speak of God in, in Isaiah 59 and 63. God sees there is no one to help his people, and God helps them. God delivers them. Friends, was he wrong to, to try and protect one of his own? Would just have uh, beating him up been okay? And just remember that the Israelites are slaves. What would you have done in his situation? Now, before we condemn him completely, we should think really carefully about that question. Now, I mentioned Acts 7 a minute ago. Just listen to how Stephen describes this incident. Verse 23. When he, that is Moses, was 40 years old, he came into, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they didn't understand. See, he supposed, says Stephen, that his brothers would understand, but they didn't understand. We see that in the next incident, don't we? Two of his brothers are fighting this time. And when he tries to intervene, they reject him, don't they? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? It's really loaded language, isn't it? And look at his response, verse 14. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Pharaoh hears of all of this, and Moses flees. It's very, very messy, isn't it? Here's the man that God seems to have raised up to deliver his people, and he's tried in some way to do that. He's failed to do that. And God's people are uh, now still enslaved, and now he himself is alienated from those people. He is despised. He is rejected. And if you read Acts chapter 7 later, you'll see Stephen say that all throughout Israel's history, those God raised up to deliver his people were repeatedly treated like that. They were rejected. They experienced <coughs> opposition. They were misunderstood. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of this, isn't he? Jesus knew greater privilege than anyone, didn't he? And yet, what did Jesus do with that privilege? He humbled himself. He came and identified with us. He came to deliver us, not by murdering someone, but by being crucified himself. What Moses tried and and failed <clears throat> to do so, to do, excuse me, Jesus did perfectly. And yet, even in this really messy situation, now we see hints that God is still at work in his life. I'm going to have a drink of water. There we go. You see, look what happens next. It's really unusual, isn't it? Yeah, verse 16 to the end. 
And seven women are, are trying to feed <coughs> their father's flock. And then some shepherds come and drive them away. But Moses stands up to them and then waters the women's flock. Now, why are we told about this? And is it just here so Moses later on can tell Gershom, this is how I met your mother? No, there's lots more going on, isn't there? Look how the women speak of Moses in verse 19. An Egyptian delivered us. And he's brought me water. There we go. What do they say about a person who brings a cup of water? There we go. Look how they speak of him in verse 19. An, an Egyptian delivered us. The, the language here is, is similar to language used of God in, in Exodus 3. And so having failed to deliver his people in the previous verse, Moses comes and he, he delivers these young women in verses 16 to 20. might be a really small deliverance, but it's not nothing, is it? It's a, it's a little victory. It's a, a little hint of things to come. God is being gracious to this man. Now, here's a man who's failed. Here's a man whose dreams have been shattered, if you like. And yet God is gracious to him. God, God gives him a wife. God gives him a son. Isn't it lovely the way that the passage begins and ends with a birth, a future? And God still has his hand on Moses' life. God is like that with people who've experienced great failure. God is kind. See, how do you prepare somebody to, to do the kind of things that Moses would do later in life? How do you train somebody to lead? Now, some of you have to do that in your work, don't you? You have to train people up, develop leaders, that kind of thing. It's never just about information, is it? It's never just about telling people something. And it's never just about training people in, in a particular set of skills. Now, in the Christian life, in Christian leadership, what really matters is not, not the knowledge we have or the things we can do. What really matters is the kind of person we're becoming. Now, you can't teach that. Now, there's no course for that. And I think what happens to Moses here is, is similar uh, to what happens to Peter. Before Peter uh, led Jesus' sheep, what had to happen to him? He had to become like <clears throat> a little lost sheep, didn't he? He had to deny his shepherd. Uh, Peter had to come to an end of himself. Peter had to crumble the rock. And yet God so often does that, doesn't he? To, to make someone, God has to break someone. And before Moses led God's people properly, well, Moses experiences deep brokenness. Uh, the boy from the palace, uh, he learns, he begins to learn something of his brothers and sisters' experience. He's alienated. 
and he's exiled. And his whole life seems to be over for 40 years. And he lives, he works as a shepherd. He, he must have thought, mustn't he? He must have thought, I've, I've blown it. And yet God is still at work in his life. Friends, have you ever been in a place like that? Have you ever experienced something like that? Are you going through something like that just now? To be a Christian is to be someone becoming more like Christ. But what is Christ like? What is Jesus like? Well, Jesus is a man of sorrows, isn't he? And so how is, how will Christ be formed in us? How and where does Christ's likeness come? Well, so often it comes in deep valleys, doesn't it? It comes through many tears. It comes through years, maybe even decades of our lives that, that, that feel like a waste. And so, friends, this passage, it reminds us God is still at work when everything looks black. And when things go from bad to worse in our Christian lives, he is still in control. And there is, there will always be a redeemer, a man of sorrows, one who is despised, one who is rejected. And so we look to him, we trust him. And let's pray together. Let's pray.